this podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. For Willis Morgan, July 27, 1981 would have been just another regular day. Working at the Miami Herald at the time, Morgan decided to grab lunch at a nearby shopping center. It was a run-in with Jeffrey Dahmer that would make that day memorable for the rest of his life. To Morgan, there are two names intertwined connected to a tragic case. Dahmer and the son of America's Most Wanted host, Adam Walsh. Morgan had experienced a random encounter with Dahmer at the shopping center at the same time that Walsh disappeared. In his new book, Frustrated Witness, the story of the Adam Walsh case and police misconduct, Morgan recounts the day Walsh vanished and makes a compelling case as to why Dahmer and not Otis, o- and not Otis Toole is his true killer. Morgan is with us on the phone. Thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. Glad to be here. This is a really compelling account, this book, Frustrated Witness. So I just went over the story very briefly. Tell us, tell us what happened about this encounter. Well, I was in Radio Shack. I was on my way to the German deli in that mall to eat lunch, and I decided to stop off in Radio Shack when I had this guy come into Radio Shack, came up to me, and he was just standing there disheveled, dirty, uh, reeking of beer, and... Uh, trying to start a conversation with me, just standing there smiling at me, asking me about the weather, you know, saying, hi, you know, it's a nice day, isn't it? You know, stuff like that. And uh, it was just very strange because I didn't answer him, and he was uh, kind of upset about that. And he wouldn't leave. He was just standing over me. But finally he did stomp, literally turn around and stomp out of the radio shack when he didn't get a response from me. It was, You could see he was quite angry, and I... Uh, I had this gut feeling somebody was going to be in trouble because I just gave you a very brief encounter uh, of, of what happened. But um, it lasted several minutes, and it was actually became very, very intense. And I just had this feeling, so I was watching him, and I watched him walk into Sears, and then I watched him walk into the toy department, and he didn't come back out. So my thinking at the time in 1981 was he probably, probably was playing uh, the video game, so I left and went home. I didn't even bother eating lunch. I just wanted to get out of there because uh, that encounter was that, that bizarre. I didn't want another encounter with him. So um, that evening, that very same evening, I heard on the news about an abduction. And my first thought was that guy. That guy did it. He actually did it. Because I, I just was my gut feeling. But never in 1981 did I think a six-year-old kid would be in trouble. I was thinking he was going to go up to somebody uh, my age. I was 34 at the time. This guy appeared to be in his early 20s. Later, I found out he was 21. And uh, that was 10 years later that I found that out. When I saw a mugshot in the paper, I I worked for the Miami Herald. And while I was doing paper check, I came across this article about something up in Milwaukee and had a mugshot of this guy. And I didn't even read the article. I just freaked out. I knew that was the guy. And I took that mugshot back to the Hollywood Police Department with me. But first, I called the uh, Miami Herald Library up, and I asked them for the composite that ran back in 1981, 10 years earlier, of the person that abducted Adam Walsh. 
And they sent me the composite. I took it to the Hollywood Police Department, and I showed it to them, and I told them, I said, look, this is the guy I saw in the mall. Of course, I went to them in 81 also, but they didn't want to listen to anything I had to say back in 81. And um, when I showed them that composite, I could tell the lead detective his jaw dropped because he knew something that I didn't know. And that was that I had the wrong composite. That wasn't from the Hollywood Mall. It was from another mall. And so later in 2008, when I got a hold of the case files, that's when I realized that was the wrong composite. And I started contacting all the other witnesses and found out that was, they also say that was Jeffrey Dahmer that they had an encounter with. But in 81, the police were dismissing all these other encounters as being relevant to the encounter at the Hollywood Mall where Adam was abducted. And... Uh, now, all of a sudden, that I was showing them other composites that were the same, and they realized that I, I believe this is my opinion. I have no way of knowing what they actually thought because they don't speak to anyone. Um, that I think they realized that everything was connected, and now all of a sudden they went into cover-up mode. There's an old saying, when you mess up, never fess up, and I think that's what they're doing. Because they did close the case in 2008, and they pinned it on the wrong guy. And they knew it was the wrong guy when they were doing it. And Again, that's my opinion. I, but I know that because I went to them even in 2007, because I've been going to them ever since it happened. I, when the new police chief, Chad Wagner, took over the police department, I tried to get an appointment with him, and I finally did. And I explained to him what happened to the police department, to his detectives. And, and all they did was threaten me with arrest. Wow. What about John Walsh? What does he, what does he well, believe? Well, the problem with John Walsh is these detectives that were on the case originally that messed the case up so bad, and that's why he wrote his book, Tears of Rage, mostly because of his rage over the investigation of, the, of the, his son's case. But yet, still, one of these detectives, when John Walsh got that TV show, America's Most Wanted, he heard about it, called John Walsh up, befriended him, and John Walsh hired him on the TV show. And a lot of people don't realize America's Most Wanted had one of these detectives, these bumbling, stumbling detectives, as the lead investigator on America's Most Wanted. So John had one of them right in his midst all these years, feeding him false information about his own son's abduction. Tell us about Mia Taylor. Mia Taylor was in the store the day before Adam was abducted. With her 10-year-old brother, her mother, and her two older brothers, but Mia and her younger brother, Joel, who was nine, Mia was 10, were in the toy department when Jeffrey Dahmer tried to abduct Joel. But he was saved because a security guard showed up, and her mother showed up, and Jeffrey Dahmer fled. And uh, she was also there the, the, the very next day, which would have been Monday, July 27, 1981, the day Adam was abducted. And she actually saw Dharma taking Adam by the fingertips and walking out with him. Wow. And there's another witness that was there Monday, the day before, uh, the week before, the very week when she met, saw Dharma in that toy department. So Dharma was there numerous times. That wasn't the first time he was there. And two Mondays before, which was July 13th, was... Another incident in the Riviera Beach when a mother, Ginger um, Keaton, took her 10-year-old son to the mall, and he stayed back in the toy department, exactly like what Ray Walsh did with Adam. And Dharma came into the toy department and tried to abduct him. But being 10, he did get away, and there were composites. And that was one of the composites I took back to the Hollywood uh, Police Department that I had wrong, the wrong composite, like I told you was from another incident two Mondays before.
the Adam Walsh abduction. And again, the police weren't able to make the connection because they had their suspect, they believed, which was John Walsh's house guest. And they believed he was their suspect and they had blinders on. There were other police chiefs from other departments, Miami Beach police chief, uh, uh, Plantation police chief, uh, the police chief in Deerfield Beach and Riviera Beach. All these other cities were calling the Hollywood Police Department, telling them that they had incidents that they believe were connected because the suspect matched, everything matched. And yet they were just completely dismissing even other police chiefs from other police departments. Oh, this is just this makes one heart sick because if it had all been believed and acted upon, lives would have been saved. I, I believe I don't know if anything would have saved Adam, but I certainly they would have captured Dom or they should have, and all those murders in Milwaukee may never have yeah. happened. Yeah. Uh, I even found the crime scene where I believe Adam was murdered, and I found it through a police report that has Jeffrey Dahmer's name all over it, dated July 7th. This is 20 days before Adam was abducted. But in that police report, Dahmer is just a witness to a dead person that was found behind the store where he worked. But uh, after I read the report, and everything in the report uh, is in contrast to what he told his boss, Ken Halbert, uh, I believe that Dahmer murdered Adam in that meter room because his blood spatter going up a wall that has been described as being indicative of a homicidal pattern and as positive for blood. It was tested with a field kit, but uh, we could never get DNA out of it because of the uh, time, you know, the humidity, um, the climate, the, uh, the lime in the mortared wall uh, made it impossible to get DNA analysis. But uh, it is, did test positive for blood, and it is indicative of a homicidal pattern. So um, somebody died in that meter room. And it wasn't that derelict that was found behind the store where Dahmer was uh, murdered because he had no blood on him. What we're, we're just about out of time. What do you hope readers will take away from your book, Frustrated Witness? Well, they closed the case and they pitted it on this guy, Otis yeah. Tool, as you said. Yeah. But I want everyone to know it was not Otis Tool. He had nothing to do with Adam's murder. And uh, I have a website with all the case files that people can go and look at. And that's justiceforadam.com. I have another website called frustratedwitness.com. And I have a Facebook page titled Frustrated Witness that you can get much more information on. And the book is uh, sold, Frustrated Witness. My book is on amazon.com. Okay. And the website frustratedwitness.com and justiceforadam.com, was that right? That is correct, yes. Okay. Willis Morgan is, uh, are you retired now? I am retired, yes. Very nice. Retired and living in Florida. But you were with... Well, retired and trying to promote this book. And, uh, but you had worked with the Miami Herald. Were you a reporter? 25 then? years. No, I worked in production. I was okay. in the press room printing. All right. Well, um, this is a fascinating, eye-opening case, and it's called Frustrated Witness, the Story of the Adam Walsh Case and Police Misconduct by Willis Morgan. Thank you so much. Thank you. Could serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer be responsible for the 25-year-old murder of six-year-old Adam Walsh, son of America's most wanted host, John Walsh? 
Dahmer was living in South Florida when the boy disappeared. Although Dahmer repeatedly denied killing Adam, this new book is prompting a call to reopen the case. Joining me now is Ann Schwartz, who broke the Jeffrey Dahmer story in Milwaukee and who wrote a book about the murders called The Man Who Could Not Kill Enough. She is now public information officer for the Milwaukee Police Department. Thanks very much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, Chris. I appreciate the opportunity to maybe give a little bit more information to uh, to people who are following this issue. Yeah, well, take us back, if you will, because obviously this has been one of the most high-profile unsolved murders, uh, really because John Walsh has tried to keep Adam's uh, memory so alive. And I know that he's very anxious in seeing this, uh, to see this case solved. Was there ever talk back then when you were first covering this that somehow there might be a connection to Jeffrey Dahmer? There certainly was. You know, when you discover a serial killer, one of the things that happens is that murders that are unsolved, high-profile murders that are unsolved from various parts of not just this country but the world, uh, those people tend to, those investigators tend to surface and to say, is there anything that could, you know, tie this person to the case that we're investigating? For example, when Dahmer was stationed in Germany right before he moved to Florida, uh, there was a series of unsolved murders of female prostitutes there, and uh, he was uh, he was talk to about that. You know, I've heard people say that, uh, that, of course, well, you know, why would you believe the word of a serial killer? Uh, clearly, Dahmer was a master manipulator and a liar and a good one. That's how serial killers go undetected for so long. But everything about the Adam Walsh case certainly uh, goes in, in contradiction to the, 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 the M.O. of Jeffrey Dahmer. Tell, tell me something said, more specifically about that. And, and I should remind people that Jeffrey Dahmer was killed while in prison, so he's not here to be questioned about this case. But uh, there weren't a lot of similarities between Jeffrey Dahmer's M.O. and the way Adam Walsh was killed? No, there are actually very few similarities. Uh, Jeffrey Dahmer chose uh, chose men for his victims. That was what interested him. Uh, he was always uh, he told the police that 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 was the uh, the profile of the person that he was interested in were uh, were males were young males, uh, preferably uh, Hispanic or African American males. That was what his uh, that was what his interest was. Also, Dahmer's victims always went willingly with him. Uh, you know, from what we know about Adam Walsh, a little six year old boy. Uh, this child would not have gone with somebody willingly if indeed we're going to take it to that step and say, you know, could Dahmer have lured this boy away from uh, from the toy department at the store where he was? Uh, but Dahmer didn't typically choose, you know, children that young. Uh, that was not what interested him. What Dahmer wanted and what he said he wanted when he talked to just about everyone who's spoken with him, including Milwaukee police investigators, was that he wanted someone who would not leave him. He wanted a partner. He wanted, that's why he ended up saving the trophies or, or, you know, parts of his victims is because he wanted to keep them with him. He was a, a, a trophy saver, and, and in, obviously we know in the Adam Walsh case uh, that, uh, that Adam's head was found in Barrow Beach uh, after, the, uh, after the crime was committed. Again, that being said, it doesn't mean that it's not a possibility. It well, let me ask you what the feeling is it. there now, Anne, because, I mean, um, you know, there are, there's a lot that, that we won't know. Uh, 25 years is, is a long time to go by, but I know that there's a great interest, remains great interest in the Milwaukee area. And even though the book has not been released yet, have you had a chance to talk to any investigators in the Milwaukee Police Department? Is there a sense that maybe there could be a connection? 
Well, there are very few investigators left at the department who even worked on the Jeffrey Dahmer case. I was looking for people this morning and was having kind of a, a tough time finding anybody who uh, was, you know, was actively involved in the Jeffrey Dahmer investigation who's still on the job. Um, what we know about Dahmer is that he was released from, he was discharged from the Army in March of 1981 and went to Florida, lived in Miami. Uh, while he was in Miami, he didn't have a lot of money. One of the things he told um, investigators, and, and I have a copy of his confession in front of me, one of the things that, that he told investigators at that time was that he didn't kill anyone in Miami because he didn't have any money. He didn't have a place to take them. He was living on the beach. He was often homeless while he was living there. Uh, while he was in Germany, he said that, that he, he didn't, again, he didn't have a place to be able to take anybody, so he didn't kill again. His first victim, if you remember, Jeffrey Dahmer's first victim was killed. It was an 18-year-old man in Bath, Ohio. Uh, Bath, Ohio, I believe Ohio at that time, did have the death penalty. So Dahmer did confess to a crime that occurred in a death penalty state. There was some discussion about whether or not uh, there was some discussion about whether or not Dahmer would have confessed to a crime that occurred in a death penalty state. Ann Schwartz, uh, a fascinating story, and I know that uh, you'll continue to follow it as we will. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you very much. And again, you know, the, I think that the, the important thing to remember is it certainly is a possibility. You know, it, it's not, it certainly is a possibility that Dahmer could have committed this murder. And I think the, the real sympathy needs to go to John Walsh, who's just wondered about this for 26 years. You know, what has happened to his child? And who would love to see this case reopen. Thank you, Anne. Thank you. Frustrated witness versus bringing Adam home. Jeffrey Dahmer versus Otis Toole. Frustrated Witness is a nonfiction true crime book about the Adam Walsh case. This is about Adam Walsh witness Willis Morgan versus Detective Sergeant Joe Matthews, who worked on the Adam Walsh case since its inception. Frustrated Witness was written so everyone will know the truth of what happened to Adam versus bringing Adam home, the book that was based on a manuscript that Detective Joe Matthews named after himself, The Matthews Report. This was the report Matthews used to bamboozle useful idiots at the Hollywood Police Department into closing Adam's case and pinning Adam's murder on an innocent man named Otis Toole. Frustrated Witness is about serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer being the real murderer of Adam. And this time you will learn from all the witnesses. This is about truth versus fiction. Frustrated Witness, second edition, is written by Willis Morgan, who is just one of nearly a Yankee stadium full of credible witnesses that have implicated Jeffrey Dahmer. Matthews considers himself to be a seasoned cold case homicide detective. But the very basic tenet of investigating a cold case homicide is to use due diligence and call all the witnesses. Matthews said he painstakingly reviewed every scrap of information in the case files, but he's never given Morgan and others like him a call. Now, in this particular case, I, I re-interviewed every single witness that was still alive. And... When the TV show America's Most Wanted first aired on February 7, 1988, Matthews, who was working on the Adam Walsh case since its inception, befriended John Walsh and was hired on to America's Most Wanted for 12 years as the on-screen senior criminal investigator. John Walsh now had one of these quintessential bumbling, stumbling detectives right in his midst, all along feeding him misinformation about his own son's abduction and murder for years. Similar to the Stockholm Syndrome, John and Reve Walsh now sympathize with the very people that have victimized them for so many years with misinformation 
cover-ups, and a false closure. John Walsh has become so contently adjusted with his closure that he now considers Matthews to be his best friend and colleague. The second edition of Frustrated Witness sets the record straight so everyone will know what happened to Adam Walsh. For more information, visit FrustratedWitness.com and JusticeForAdam.com. I keep, we keep re-recording this, and one of the main reasons is because I keep getting hung up on, and, and like I said it in one of the other recordings, and I'll try and say it here, but you got the six-year-old, and you were talking about the fact that like people don't think of a six-year-old like a six-year-old, and when you put a picture of them up when they're four or five, people don't understand how old this kid is. And I think that that was a big part of some of the problems with this case. The baseball picture? Yeah, well, not necessarily that picture. I just feel like, which a six-year-old is by no means like, you know, a teenager. It's just they're also not a three-year-old. Well, it, that that's exactly what I mean. I mean, a six-year-old would cause a ruckus. Right, and a six-year-old is, okay, so I have a child who is a teenager now, and he is in second grade. I can, you know, very vividly recall what he was like. Okay. And when I sort of, of course, I know Adam Walsh was six years old and he was actually, he would have been seven the following November. So, you know, a couple, he was just a few months away from being seven. And thinking about that, uh, thinking about my child when he was six, it's not, I don't buy the fact that he could have been lured by a stranger without being like, you know, hey, mom, this is going on. You, you see what I'm saying? Especially since she was yeah, so yeah. close by. And I guess, honestly, because I grew up with this story and this is just, it was what it was, I don't think I've ever really considered it until I was sort of reading through all the notes and trying to make sense of all this because there's a lot of stuff going on in this case and in the case files. And when it occurred to me, like, oh, wait, this kid's not three, he's six years old. And by all accounts of all the adults in his life, he was a very responsible child and an intelligent child. And so it wasn't like he's got a toddler that's not going to know better. It's it's also not like six-year-olds are harder to scoop up. They're impossible to scoop up. And, and, and like, they, you know, they, they make a ruckus even if you are their parent. Right. And so that was, it was an interesting kind of revelation to me because while I had in my head, Adam Walsh was six years old, as I was reading some stuff, it just, it would have been impossible to get that child out of the store without somebody noticing um, if he was abducted by a stranger or outside. If in fact he was sent outside, it would have been impossible for somebody to have gotten him in a car without a a scene being caused. And so all that being said, you know, there wasn't a scene and we're sort of going to kind of dissect like how we got to that conclusion. Keeping in mind, even though we see pictures of young Adam and six-year-olds are young. I know Children that are only children that hang out with adults all the time, they have a tendency to be a little more mature. I imagine that's how Adam probably was. Even if he were to have been kicked out of the store by the security guard, 
if, you know, scooped up by a stranger, like there still would have been somebody seeing something. And while there were some accounts that tried really hard, like ultimately nobody saw anything. Because I don't know about you, but I think to myself, when Otis Tool did it, like when it's announced that Otis Tool is responsible for it before we know anything about Otis Tool. Like you think to yourself, oh, what a shame that poor child, like he just, he didn't even know better. Like he just went with this crazy stranger, right? Except now, all these years later, I'm an adult looking into it from an adult's point of view going, wait a minute, I've got a son and he was six once and there is absolutely no way that that's what would have occurred. In fact, as close as he was to his mother, I don't believe for a second that he could have gotten sent out by the security guard or taken by a stranger without her noticing. Yeah, and so I don't even think that's an adult perspective. It is an adult perspective, but the perspective I came at this from, and I think that you share this, is, is from a parent perspective. Sure. Well, yeah, but, and I guess what I mean is when I say adult perspective, well, I guess it would be parent as well, but like going from like being the kid who grew up scared somebody was going to kidnap me and cut my head off at Sears to looking at it from an adult parent's perspective going, wait a minute, that's not what happened to six-year-olds. And I'm not saying that he wasn't taken from fears, I'm just saying I even the shyest child, knowing that his mother was within, you know, certainly within yelling distance, he wasn't going to go without some sort of fight. Yeah. Well, not not just well, okay, my timeline on this doesn't jive with the official official story. Now that I've looked at yours, I think that you're in the same boat I'm in. The, so I don't actually think Adam would have been engaged in the ruckus that caused a security guard to boot people. Right. And so that is one of the very first places that we really start seeing this weird discrepancy. And obviously we don't know what happened. We weren't there. All right. First of all, I just want to say that, like, what I have in front of me is your timeline. You went through and you were running down it, trying to put a timeline together, incident by incident. Basically, you started with the first official police incident here, and that is Reve trying to file the missing persons report. Correct. And And that was at 1.55 p.m., and uh, there's different accounts of it. Uh, there, it said that a Sears employee called Hollywood police. It said that Revee called Hollywood police. And it doesn't really matter because the point of it is that at 1.55 p.m. on July 27th, 1981, the police were called and Revee Walsh. So she didn't file a missing persons report, but she reported that her son, who was with her at the store, was missing. It's not, a, it's not filed. It's just that's when the hunt begins, the search begins for the kid. And it creates, it creates a paper trail by, like, the officers at the scene later on, they file a police report about their interaction with Rebecca. So it, everything starts to get captured. The, the purpose of this is we were trying to determine 
sort of each incident and, and who the rule outs might be as far as suspects go and, and sort of just how they investigated it. Because we both, we keep coming back. And I guess the word you use is probably appropriate, which is, you know, this, <laughs> this, this case is over investigated because now that I'm looking at it all, you know, there's so many polygraphs. That's like one of the things that stands out, but also there are so many different possible accounts, sightings, tips, recollections that are verified as far as they can be verified. And, and the truth is this case generates so much paperwork and so much attention that I can see how people would look at it and get maybe a third of the way into reading all of it and sort of throw up their hands. Wow. And, and it's not even just like, okay, so I have actually already read all this stuff and you, I had told you briefly, like, I think I'm going to try and like organize this so we can actually talk about these things. And you know how long ago that was. And I've literally worked on it since then. And I'm only up to like that certain point. But it's taken me that long because I have to start at, you know, the incident and then I've got to go find like what ends up happening. Right. (laughs) And to sort of sum it up because I want it to be in chronological order, but it's really chronological of when a particular event happens. And then immediately to the right of it, you've got the immediate information of to the extent I can find how it ended up. And I felt like that was the best way to do it because otherwise, I kid you not, you look into something and you go back and there's 10 new people involved. And you're like, wait, how did this happen? Like, right, where, where did it, it come from? Right. And, and so it is really bizarre and it is so confusing. And I have to say, like, we have got this timeline to a certain point and I've, you know, continued on from there, but I sort of wanted to, I feel like this is going to be plenty for us to talk about, like at this point in time, but I just want to say, I was coming across some notes. So these are handwritten, photocopied, scanned into microfiche, handwritten notes. So that's how terrible, like, I'm trying to decipher things. This would have been from later, the later investigation, talking about how bad of a detective Detective Hoffman was. Can you believe that? I read that and... I disagree. I completely disagree. He was not a bad detective. In well, not fact, was he not the, a bad detective. He got stonewalled. But with the crap he was dealing with, I mean, oh, yeah. I, 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 and I'm not saying like the case is crap. I'm saying I feel like it would be really easy to sit off to the side and say, yeah, that's a bad detective. However, having gone through the files like I have, so this was an investigator much later reviewing the file going, this is a bad detective. What does that tell you about that situation? Oh, uh, well, whoever it was that said, oh, this is a bad detective, I've already decided they were never going to solve this case. Like the person with that opinion doesn't know what they're looking at. 
Yeah, I agree. And so I feel like it took a while for me to really get into, you know, the child, the myth, the legend, Adam Walsh, but like the actual case, Adam Walsh. And even after I was fully immersed in it, I was still sort of trying to get my head wrapped around it. And so the fact that I could even decipher what I ended up getting out of the file is amazing to me. The fact that all that information was actually there because it was so insane, the way this sort of took off. Right. And I, it's interesting that you say it that way because one of my biggest problems with this has been my conclusion not matching what I know of John Walsh. So while you had to do it with the Adam case that you thought you knew, the Adam case that you thought you knew versus the Adam case that's on paper, I had to do it with the John Walsh who would have made decisions between July 27th, 1981 and August 10th, 1981 that would change this case forever that were wrong. They were bad decisions. He made two decisions that torpedoed this case forever and he stuck with it for some reason. Well, okay, and this is definitely, I would say I don't have as strong of an opinion either way, um, because I, I do agree that decisions were made, and they were forceful decisions, and they may not have been the right decisions. I don't know if that's even really part of, like, sort of my argument and why I want to cover this case, but... Like, he was acting as a parent, so you have to think to yourself, this wasn't John Walsh like we know John Walsh now. This was John Walsh like the marketing executive for a hotel in Florida whose son went missing. So those decisions that he made then, I think, fit. Like, that's it's stuff that parents would do. And quite frankly, I can't think of – the possible alternatives having a better result. I don't know. I honestly don't know. But I, I just, I don't, I really don't want to bring fault. Part, one of my biggest holdbacks in this case is how we're having to navigate it because I feel like it's controversial. I feel like there are some blaring things that I don't understand and perhaps it's me not reading the room. Um, and, you know, we'll get to all that. But it is it is interesting, like, the different forces behind this. But at this time, so in 1981, and like you said, it would be July 27th, 1981 through about August 15th, 1981, August 10th, 1981, there were some desperate types of decisions. And I assume you mean like putting out a reward and saying, you know. That was one like, of them. Right. And what was the other? Um, some of the, okay. So the other decision is sort of twofold. It's he, John Walsh basically got it in his head that this was a monster and protected a person, I, I think, was wrong. But the way that decision becomes twofold is that person is then involved in a bunch of other aspects of the case that he never should have been a part of. And that ultimately 
is why this case ends up landing on Honest Tool because you you have trouble imagining people close to you um, doing those type things. And there were a lot of monsters they were running down here. And it's like the variables are insane because some of the suspects are like 13 to 15 years old. And some of the suspects are 60 and 65. So. Right. And not every single, like, so I gave sort of an account of what was happening. Now, I don't want to confuse anybody by saying, like, these were police suspects because... No, 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 uh, no. I just mean, okay. like, tips that came in. Like, so, you know what? It, it's probably better if we just, like, go through the list. Just okay. so, like, we kind of touch on some of them. So, on July 29th, this guy named George McMullen, he reports that on July 27th that he thought he might have seen Adam Walsh, and this is, like, near the parking lot, but it's like middle of the afternoon. So it's a little later than events actually happened. And he thought he was standing there with like two 13 to 15 year old males beside a car. He thought it was either a Ford or a Chevy. He thought it was a late model, like a, like a, a, an appropriate for that time model Ford or Chevy car that was white. He said it might have a CB antenna and that he thought that th he didn't see the kid get in the car. He just wanted to report it. Um, right, and he was standing there with a 13 and a, and a, like he described two children that were from 13 to 15, which was odd, except I just realized maybe kids in Florida could drive at 15. Well, I don't, he never says that he saw them in the car, the car moving, or he just saw the car door open and the kids standing there. Correct, that's right. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, that, that lead goes nowhere. So then they get an anonymous tip to check out a particular abandoned building the the following day, and they go and do a visual inspection of the building, and it's like, you know, obviously you got people have been in and out of it drinking and, and whatnot, but there's nothing there that looks like a crime scene, and there's no evidence of Adam being there. And that's on uh, July 30th. Now, here's, a, here's one of the interesting ones for me on – July 30th, there's a hang-up call at the Walsh residence. That is at, like, somewhere around 2 in the morning. And supposedly, the voice on the other side is a male who answers and says, John. Like, you know, is, John, is it John Walsh? Um, the guy who answered the phone is a family friend named James Campbell. And James Campbell just says no, and the caller hangs up. So somehow this ends up in the police file because James Campbell thought, well, maybe that's like some kind of ransom call or something. So he sort of like puts his own spin on that and, and that ends up in the tip file. And later that day uh, on July 30th, Marilyn Pottenberg advises that her 10-year-old son, Timothy, had witnessed a suspicious incident at the mall. But then when the police go to interview him, she apparently talked to her doctor, and the doctor is like, oh, yeah, you don't want to get involved. Then July 31st, now this is an interesting one because this is one of the kids that gets into the mix that, like, I think you took a little detour on. Um, this is uh, Angela Asaturo. And Angela Asaturo and Greg Rizari uh, were, they were the kids that were, they were at the Sears Mall, supposedly around the same time Adam was. They come and go from the story a little bit, but they described that there was a couple of white males, one being tall with like dirty blonde curly hair, 
who was in the toy section, and they described that they saw these guys leaving in a green van. And was this the green van that had the turtle on it? Is that how this comes from the Yes. Okay. okay, so somehow they get interviewed or Yeah, this is actually a tip they give them. Like they this call is in them well, I don't know that they called in, but like after there was a uh request for information, the boys contact police and give them this tip. Like, so it's not an interview about, like, them possibly being in contact with Adam Walsh. It's them tipping off the police because they were at the store that day. Right. So they see these two guys get into a green van, and supposedly they later saw the same two guys at this Italian restaurant. Let me just clarify really quick. Um, So they see two males at Sears on the day of Adam Walsh's uh, disappearance. They're lurking in the toy department. Um, then on the day they call this tip in or provide this tip with police, that's the day they see the same van at the restaurant. Right. And, and okay, so the day of the tip, that makes more sense. So the Hollywood Police Department responded to this car because these kids had somehow gotten the tag number. They respond to this car's current location, which is a bar. The occupant is an African-American male who does have two companions that apparently were white males. Everybody was cooperative. And now this is an interesting one because it never gets closed out as much as it sort of hangs there. But they had no reason to suspect them. I assume like some of the timelines didn't match up here exactly or something. Actually, the, um, I'm... I apologize. This is my fault because of the way I was doing it. Uh, it's continued down to the next thing. The lead is cleared. The boys saw the green van at Sears. They see it again at a restaurant. They advise the police that um, the t- same two men that were at Sears take a blanket out of the green van and they put it into the blue, uh, blue station wagon. And it's suspect to them because I guess they feel like there could have been a boy wrapped in that blanket. But the police immediately respond where they find the three men, the black male who owns the blue station wagon and his two companions. They're all staying at the Poke Hotel. And while the police are talking to him, they're like, essentially, we have no idea what you're talking about. We have nothing to do with any of this. Please feel free to search anything you want. Ask us whatever you want. And the police, they are able to corroborate everything they say. And, you know, they're not leaving town or whatever. And the lead is essentially cleared because the kids, I don't think they were necessarily making stuff up. Now, it was brought to the attention that there were some things in the blue station wagon. And because one of the guys had been evicted from his apartment and so they were kind of putting stuff in, but it wasn't like a body. It was like, you know, household essentials that his friend was storing in the vehicle. And actually, one of the guys, the guy that was evicted, he was basically uh, bunking with one of the guys at the hotel uh, until he got, he figured out what he was going to do next. Right. And, but the gist of that is, so... That part gets cleared, but the two boys, Angelo and Greg, 
later on, Angelo's story never keeps going for me. It just sort of hangs there. But Greg is interviewed like a month later in August, and he says he never saw Adam Walsh, where he has originally said he saw Adam Walsh and he saw these other two guys at Sears at the mall on that day. He later says he didn't see them. Right. And I was a little confused by that. And as far as the story goes, Revee Walsh went to Sears, allowed Adam to stand and play or wait to play the Atari that was set up there. And the Atari situation runs sort of (laughs) off the chain here because, and you said that, you know, kids don't stand there and play for hours, but it's amazing to me how, like, even though this is a small period of time, these minutes, the the five-minute differences that are in the storyline or the timeline, they make big differences. But I realize they may not have said that they actually saw Adam Walsh and their timeline, I don't think would have coincided with what I thought Adam time Adam timeline would have been after I read all the accounts of it. Yeah. And I agreed with you there. Like, I think that it, 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 it on the one hand, it's hard to get a really firm timeline in a situation like this. You got to have some kind of window. On the other hand, once you start adding everybody's 10 minutes into the mix, it gets that window grows too much. Like it's too far to the afternoon for, for any of these things to have anything to do with Adam. That's where you sort of end up. Right. And so we do, so we know that Revere Walsh allowed Adam to stand and possibly play, if not play, wait his turn to play on the Atari they had set up there in the store. And then you have a security guard saying there was an issue, there was an altercation between, like there was two kids that were together and two kids she thought were together. There's an altercation where one of the boys got hit and it was over, you know, playing the game. And um, she ended up, because when she went to intervene... The security guard is is the she. The she, right. The security guard went to intervene because, like, it was getting physical, and she sent two sets of boys out two different doors so they wouldn't continue fighting. I actually have come to the conclusion, I the timing of that, based on several different accounts, I don't think Adam Walsh was actually involved in that. In fact, I think he was, I think that Adam Walsh, was gone before twelve fifteen, and as we go through the timeline, I will will get to where I can kind of point that out. Yeah, and I agree with that. So the next big thing that happens is on July thirty first, they actually hypnotize or put into a deep state of relaxation, Reve Walsh, and she gives a full account of all of this of everything that happened that day. Um, this is a session with Martin Siegel. Right? Is that the hypnotist? That's correct. And, okay. And, well, I don't know if they are actually called hypnotists, but he is the person who does the hypnotizing. <laughs> right. And, like, this was not its not really as much voodoo as it might sound like. It's just a deep relaxation and sort of a, a recount of all of the events. And there's nothing notable that happens here. Her original account stands up. Right. And that would have been, like, the original account of the story that she gave when she initially called the police. 
Right. So after that, like the hypnotist session, there's a there's a a tip at a local amusement park where there's a, a woman who's seen with a little boy that seems out of place. So the first person that calls this in is uh, Jackie McConnell. And she actually, this is where one of our first composites come from. There's, there's some weird shit with composites in this story, but this is one of the first ones. And it's, it's of a woman. And that composite drawing goes wild <laughs> in the media as things were going with this. It really it ha- it ends up having nothing she to do with Adam. She actually walks herself into the police station and says, hey, this is me, and I was with my neighbor's child not Adam Walsh and they clear it all up. Like they check everything out and that lead is cleared. And she did it because she didn't want them wasting time on her and her neighbor's child because it had nothing to do with anything. So the next person that sort of gets in our mix here of like what the police are doing is after Beatrice, which is who that's a woman with her neighbor's child. And that's um, James Campbell. And he gets a visit on August 7th uh, to his job over at the Golden Strand Motel. They, they're, they're looking for him, but they don't find him. They find, uh, is it Shannon Carroll or Carol Shannon? Do you okay. have an opinion on that? Because you could have I, the right one. No, I don't. I'm going to, so these, this is what. All of this, these people with these multiple first names, like it's hard. <laughs> right. So the, the, the gist of it is they get to the Golden Strand Motel. Jim Campbell's not there. James Campbell's not there. So, and and this is a guy who lived with the Walshes and had an affair with Revae and like was very close with Adam. So they were they're sort of following up on a lot of different angles for this investigation. What they do there is they end up getting the names of several people that James Campbell's interacted with, and that's um, Luis uh, Munoz and Gordon Shot. Gordon Shot. So. These guys were employees who knew James Campbell, knew what he did there, renting out his little sailboats and, and the things that he did. They can run down partial timelines for James, and they actually remember Joe Walsh, who is John's little brother, arriving to look for James Campbell. And one of the interesting things they noted here was that uh, Gordon advised that on the 27th, the day that Adam went missing, he was off. And he didn't have any information about James, James's activities that day, but he offered up that James had borrowed a motorcycle to search for um, Adam the following day, switching out his own car and taking Gordon's motorcycle. So that, you know, they're still running down leads at this point. And that same day, they give John Walsh um, a polygraph. He voluntarily submits to a polygraph. Which and administered- I believe that's the first polygraph right yeah this is the first one this is like within 10 days this is the very first polygraph it's john walsh's unless reveys had been done reveys had the hypnotist. no it hasn't it comes okay. up but that's not it yeah okay so john walsh goes with joe matthews of the miami beach police department and it, we're already starting to get the feeling that there's a little bit of like um an issue between hollywood and miami beach like just you and i looking at the paperwork Joe Matthews being the polygrapher here is not a huge problem yet, but it becomes one later. 
Oh, it seems like, um, you know, because this was such a big sort of overwhelming situation, um, you know, Miami Beach was there to help. And while it was a big overwhelming situation, like, there wasn't a whole lot to go around just yet, really. And so, you know, you get the feeling that people feel like their toes are getting stepped on and that kind of thing. But it's interesting to me that John Walsh is the very first person polygraphed because he was at work. And I guess they just, he, I imagine John Walsh said, well, if you, you're going to put me as a suspect, which it would be common. Like parents, of course, would be the suspects. You know, I want to get this out of the way so we can get this show on the road and get going to the real suspect, which is ironic now that I say that out loud. But anyway. Well, so <laughs> late, later that evening, um, after, so John Walsh passes the polygraph. There's no signs of deception, according to Joe Matthews. Um, so later that evening, a series of things start happening. The first one is they, they do finally get James Campbell and they interview him. Um, they don't get a lot of, of feeling either way. They, they, basically, what happens there is James Campbell gives them a bunch of information they got to go run down. Um, the gist of it is he had been living with the Walshes but moved out two weeks prior to Adam's disappearance, uh, mainly because he was no longer in college, and that was one of the deals. The Walshes and he felt like everybody needed a change, but he had been there the day of Adam's disappearance at the Walsh's house having breakfast with Reve and Adam. And it seemed to have been a day where Reve had a lot going on, and she actually asked him to watch Adam, and he said no. Um, so he so he went on. He had a film crew coming in, and he had several things to do at the Golden Strand and the Thunderbird Motel, which was six or eight miles away. This I don't want to really get too far into uh, James Campbell, but this seems like a really good um, place to sort of mention this. Like, do you find it odd how there's never a straight answer and, like, exactly how long he lived there and exactly when he moved out? Yeah, and that's one of the things that makes me come back to James Campbell so much. Because it's weird. Like, it, see, like, and then when it finally is determined, like, it was a week or two the answers that are sort of that go along with questions about like, you know, what, why did you move out? Where did you move to? That kind of thing. Like they're so vague for such a short period of time with such dramatic things occurring. I feel like it wouldn't be that hard to nail down. Well, he was close enough to the family at this time that, the way that he responded to things makes them want to polygraph him. So they end up, he, he submits a polygraph and this is at 9 PM with also Joe Matthews from Miami beach. And his first test results are inconclusive. Now, John Walsh and, and Joe Matthews say different things about this later. Joe Matthews flat out says that's not the case, except he's contradicting himself because he stated that it, that the results were inconclusive. And it doesn't go any further than that, but you and I, this made some flags for us very early on. Because of that happening and it being inconclusive, they bring him back in. So this is late on a Friday. They bring him back in on Monday, and they test him again. And 
and Joe Matthews, once again, is the polygrapher. He indicates there's no signs of deception. And he sort of passes on the message that, that James Campbell passed the test. Right. And so then James Campbell ends up also going to see Martin Siegel and having a relaxation hypnosis. He volunteers to do that. There are no major discrepancies in the story that he's telling. So then the next thing that we see is uh, she, this, this is a woman that shows up on August 10th and she is, she's there on behalf of her, her son, Matthew, but her name is um, Mrs. Huveris. Mrs. Huveris. Thank you. So mm-hmm. Mrs. Huveris witnessed a 20 year old white male chasing a child named Terry. Terry asked for assistance in getting away from the man. Mrs. Huveris told a Sears employee of the situation and they paced his mother who came and picked Terry up and didn't seem to give a shit about the chasing incident. But Mrs. Huveris thinks that she was witnessing what might have been an attempted kidnapping. And I will point out that like this is August tenth that this test comes in. But what's so interesting about it is that this is the beginning. This is the beginning of the effect that the Adam Walsh case will have. And that is Yeah, you're right. Pe- people start seeing strangers chasing children. And, and there is th- a follow up. It's just a little later. Just also on August tenth um, that is when the head of Adam Walsh is recovered, and it is made public that that has been confirmed to be his head on August the 11th. Now we have to talk about possible witnesses and possible suspects, um, but I want to notate something here because some of the stuff that I'm dealing with in this episode is conspiracy-related, and it's about, like, Padamer have done it and blah, blah, blah. One of the things that is a conspiracy that is on the internet you can find from multiple sources at this point is the idea that Adam Walsh's head was not Adam Walsh's head. And according to what we have found, there was a 2003 mitochondrial DNA test uh, performed at the Bodie Technology Group, which is up in Springfield, Virginia. And it confirmed that the mandible and 11 teeth recovered in the Adam Walsh case and oral swabs of Revae Walsh were found to be consistent with a maternal match, supporting the identification of the remains as Adam Walsh. So you and I put that to bed based on the fact that those tests It's scientifically like, proven. Yeah, we feel, like it's, we feel like it's not just scientifically proven, but, like, it's entered into evidence, and it's, a, it's definitely, like, you know... Uh, BTG is definitely a, a reliable source for that to have been. Uh, I agree. Concerned. And that's why I sort of put that there because, like, it's mm-hmm. just for argument's sake because, honestly, like, the whole theory behind, like, oh, it couldn't have possibly been his tooth coming in and all that, I get it. And, actually, I went specifically looking because I knew that they had said they were going to do the test, and I found the results. And so that's why I added that. But, um, there are a couple of pictures that are after the famous uh, baseball picture. His tooth is quite prominently coming in, which I've shown you sort of repeatedly, the one where he's petting yeah. the cat or whatever. Like, his, that's his tooth. Like, 
And I get where people would wonder, but I mean, you and I talked about it. Like there were no other kegs out there that this head could have been. And beyond that though, that's not, that's just my opinion. I found the proof that I feel like should convince anybody who's wondering that, you know, there you go. It, it's him. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I like to try and entertain anything just to see if there might be a little bit of truth to it. And that one, uh, I entertained it long the, enough to find the DNA report. I mean, it was right, worth yeah. it. Yeah. And that's, you know, there is so much going on in this case for me that like, that uh, I am not doubting that Adam Walsh's head. I, I and, didn't really either, but just in case, you know, there's it never hurts to point out obvious evidence. Yeah, and so so that you know that test was done much later, but it 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 is confirming that Rave Walsh's son is the is the head that they found, or at least the jaw, if you want to go that route. The mandible so, with the teeth, right? Right. <laughs> so I mean, if people want to get super, it was I, attached to the rest yeah. of the head. It's just that's the part they. Yeah, and, and I'm sure, you know, I, I haven't even mentioned this case, but I'm chasing a medical examiner right now just trying to find out if some of the remains she has have heads. And I feel like a crazy person doing that. So uh, they're not they're not calling me back at the moment because I really want to know. So I, I understand, like, putting things yeah, together. Yeah, I've looked. I've looked. Um, and it's, I think it's the area. They just aren't. It's like there's no, you know, news on it or whatever. Yeah. But. And I was going to wrap up the Adam Walsh case this week, but then something happened. So it's it's Christmas Eve, and I'm trying to get the Adam Walsh thing done, except I just missed a call from the medical examiner's office on those remains. And when I dial back, I don't get them. So should I wait, or should I go ahead and post the conclusion now? What do you think? I can cut it off. I have enough to make one last episode that I can work them in. Yeah, one But, I mean, but, but they may say, you're crazy, we're not talking to you. They may, there may not be anything for them to say. What do you think? Even as a spoiler? Cliffhanging? You mean to cliffhang the episode? Yeah, why not? That is so long. I don't want to do that. We've got a conclusion. This would be, I mean, is it worth coming back? All I'm asking is, do your remains have a head? Do I want to do that on Christmas Eve? Just... just what? Uh, yes. Um, my name is John. I'm returning a call from one of the investigators in your office. Yes. Hold on, please. Investigations. Um, yes. Is available? This is she. Hey, it's John from True Crime XS, and I was, uh, I, I had a question. I just wanted to know if you can look at a case number and tell if it's uh, if there's a skull with the remains or not. Okay, and what case is it? Six. Give me one moment. Okay. All right, I'm going to have to pull that information. Do you have a callback number? Yeah, you can reach me at...
Okay, John. Okay, yeah, let me pull that information and we'll see um, the status of, of that information and what can be released, okay? Okay, perfect. Thank you. Take care. All right, bye. Thanks for joining us. You can reach us at 252-365-5593 or at truecrimexcess.com or truecrimexcess at gmail.com if you want to send us a note. This episode was brought to you by LabrotiCreations.com. That's L-A-B-R-O-T-T-I-E-C-R-E-A-T-I-O-N-S.com. Check out the merchandise and specifically their fun pop pet art custom pieces made from photos of your very own pets. Use the promo code CRIMEXS, that's C-R-I-M-E-X-S, for 20% off a fun, brightly colored, happy piece of art of your own pet at their site. Abradicreations.com. Music in this episode was licensed for True Crime Excess. The theme song was Indestructible by Noah Smith. You can find us on your favorite podcast platform or at T Public, Instagram, or Twitter. You can also join us on Patreon to fund future body exploration trips. But the best thing you can do for us is leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform and share us with your friends. And we'll see you next time. This is true crime.